Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, welcome. We're glad that you're here with us. Thanks for joining us for worship today. We're nearing the end of a series on the book of Mark as we approach Easter. And this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, reading verses 32 through 42. You'll find that on page 851 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. And you'll also notice if you've been here the last few weeks, we're, we're skipping slightly ahead. We're skipping over uh, what Mark tells us about the Last Supper. We're going to be taking up that text and looking at that at our Monday Thursday service in a couple weeks right before Easter. So this week we come to Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we come to you this morning um, and to your word. Would you open it to us now? Would you give us eyes that are open and ears that are open and a heart that is open to what you have for us? Father, we can trust as we come that you are speaking here. Would you drive it home by the power of your spirit? Lord, we, we need you speaking life into us. So we ask you to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove the cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, and their, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. It's given to us for our good. And for his glory. <clears throat> why is this scene in the Bible? Why is it this here? I mean, it is, uh, in, in many ways, maybe a, a part of the story that you can imagine the gospel writers would, would have easily left out. Because w w when you read this, if you, if you really think about it, it's, it's a little disturbing what's going on here. What's happened to Jesus? Because he seems like he's on the verge of collapse here. And he actually is. Now, this is Jesus on the eve before he is killed. And as he starts to face what that's going to mean for him, it, it, the reality of this comes crashing in on him and it nearly crushes him. But what happened to Jesus? I mean, all throughout the book of Mark, Jesus has resolutely been headed toward Jerusalem. He's known exactly what was going to happen to him. And he's been marching that way with his disciples with uh, no sign of fear. And now this. I mean, in fact, he had told his disciples several times, look, we're going to Jerusalem, uh, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And the disciples didn't know what to make of that. They, they, they thought Jesus was, was speaking metaphorically, maybe, but Jesus knew that he wasn't. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him, and he went nonetheless. But, but now we've got Jesus um, falling apart the night before he's going to be crucified. 
And if, if you think about it, we, we all know stories, maybe you've known people like this or certainly knowing stories from history of, of people that have you know, faced their death, their oncoming death with calm and with confidence and without faltering. I mean, the, Mark's readers uh, were largely Gentile readers and they would have been well-schooled in Greek and Roman culture. And, and they would have known you know, Socrates, for example, who is unjustly accused by the Athenian council and sentenced to death and how on, you know, at the moment of his death, as he prepares to drink the poison, his disciples are sad, and he tells them not to show any emotion, like he calmly goes to his death, but not Jesus. Uh, even in the early church from the very beginning, Acts chapter 7, we get, the, we get a picture of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, when he is, uh, when, when he is testifying before the, um, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the very same ones who had sentenced Jesus to death and giving testimony to them, they, they, they cry out that he must be stoned and they haul him outside the city and begin to throw stones at him to kill him. And in the midst of being stoned to death, he prays this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Calm and collected in the face of death, but not Jesus. Uh, early church Christians in Rome Christians maybe that Mark's readers would have known, being turned into human torches by Nero, being thrown to lions, being killed by gladiators. In stories from the early years of the church, of people going to their death singing. Fox's Book of Martyr tells the story of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were killed for their faith in Oxford, England in 19, or excuse, 1955. In, uh, and as they are tied to the stake, and as the flames begin to leap up around their feet, uh, Latimer turns to his friend Ridley and says, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So they're consumed by flames. But we've got Jesus here breaking down. And lest we misunderstand what he's saying, he's asking God to do something other than what he's going to do. God, there's got to be another way. Stop this train. I'm ready to get off. Don't do what you're about to do. He's entreating God. Is there any other way? So what's going on? Again, this would have been the perfect scene for the gospel writers to omit in their story of Jesus. As they're proclaiming the good news to the world. By the way, Jesus was on the verge of collapse the night before he died. So what's going on? Well, Gethsemane, this scene here in this garden, it is the opening scene of Jesus' passion, his betrayal, his abandonment, his suffering and death, all of which is going to happen over the course of the next couple days here in the, in the narrative. You see, this, this, phase, this is the start of the phase of his story that ends in Easter. The agony of it begins here, this night in this garden. And here in Jesus' prayer, we get, we get a glimpse of the depth and the magnitude and the beauty of the gospel as he wrestles with God's call on his life. So we're going to see it here in, in, in three ways, uh, three aspects of this prayer. We're going to look at the cup, the confidence, and the company that Jesus keeps. First, the cup. Okay, verse 34, as, he's, as, as he begins to pray and as he begins to speak about this cup, he, it, he's in this um, in, in, incredibly overwhelmed emotional state. Verse 34, he talks about his soul being sorrowful to death. In other words, he feels like whatever's going on inside of him, the wrestling is going to kill him. He, would, he feels like he's on the verge of death just from the interior struggle. He's worn out. He's, uh, his body is beat already. It says that as he goes to pray to God, he falls down on his face before God. Luke uh, adds the detail in his telling of this, that Jesus was sweating drops of blood 
in his agony and anxiety. Uh, maybe you've known experiences to some small uh, degree like this. You know that inner turmoil can, can play itself out physically. Maybe, maybe you've had a taste in this of, of fear or anxiety or depression that's, that's just so overwhelmed you. It's felt like your, your body was taking the hit. Well, that's what's happening with Jesus. And as he's in the state collapsing before God, he begins to pray. And he prays and asks, verse 36, that God take away the cup. What's going on with the cup? Jesus is using um, an Old Testament metaphor of the cup, the cup of God's wrath. That's the cup that he's speaking of. This Old Testament picture of it's as if God's wrath, his anger, his righteous anger against sin is this deadly wine that has been poured into this cup, this goblet that is going to be drunk by someone. In Ezekiel, it mentions this in chapter 23. Thus says the Lord God, as he's speaking to Israel, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. It's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 51. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, uh, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. He's calling on this Old Testament image of God's wrath in this cup. And it's, it's painful kind of for, to even talk about now, isn't it? And to, to listen to this, this very dark side of what Jesus is going through. And it's the magnitude of the wrath of God that, that Jesus sees clearly here that is um, what is overwhelming to him. Jesus, though he knows he will be resurrected on the far side of this, it does not take away the bitterness of the cup for him. See, Jesus' agony this night before his death is not simply about uh, an impending physical pain and death. Even a death like this on the cross. It's because this death is connected with this cup. That in Jesus' death, he is going to drink this cup of God's wrath until that cup is empty. You see, Jesus, uh, drinking this, though as the Bible tells us, um, death is not natural. It's an enemy that came into the world on the heels of sin. Death is a consequence of sin. And here you have Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, fully God, fully man, who has never sinned. Jesus is the one man over whom death should have no hold. And yet he is going to the cross for his people to drink this cup. He is in agony over the cup. And this cup of, God, of wrath of God... It, it, it shows us at least two things. Okay, first, it shows us this. The incredible seriousness and ugliness of sin. We don't often think about sin in this kind of stark terms. We tend to often think of sin as either something that really, really bad people do, or it's just these kind of minor character flaws that we still wrestle and struggle with, but aren't all that serious after all. But as we know, even in civil uh, law, that justice demands that wrongs be paid for. Okay, imagine two different court scenes. One, it's traffic court. And somebody gets up to plead their case, and they've, been, uh, they've gotten a ticket for speeding. And the judge renders his verdict, and he says, look, you're, uh, you're a first offender. Don't do it again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this ticket away. We're not going to make you pay for it. And we look at that, and you know, 
maybe we just kind of think, what well, you know, he got lucky. We'd like a judge like that. If you're the next guy coming up before the traffic court, you, you might have a, a you, you might not be as happy if you didn't get the same sort of lenient treatment. But imagine a different kind of court. Uh, imagine a judge who is rendering verdict over someone who's been convicted of murder, and a heinous one at that. And the judge says to him, with the victim's family around in the courtroom, he says, um, what you have done is horrible and inexcusable. You know, however, you're a first-time offender. You've never murdered before. And so I'm going to let you go, but I want you to promise never to do something like this again. Right? What, would, what would that family do and what would we do? We cry out that there is injustice here because we know that justice must be dealt, that it must come against real law-breaking and real, in our terms, real sin. But our problem with God's wrath is that, that we think we're the guy who got busted going 28 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, not the guy that got convicted of, of murder. That we look at our own lives, we think, you know, this is, this is minuscule. This are, these are sort of character flaws versus real sin. Well, uh, the Bible tells us from first to last that our, that our sin is really that serious. That it's not simply a character flaw. It's not simply something we need to polish up a little bit. But it tells us that from the start, when sin first entered the world, it is humanity turning its back on God. It is us shaking our fist at him. It is us wanting something other than his good and kindly rule over our lives. As one theologian put it, sin is cosmic treason. That's what our sin is. And that's why God's wrath comes against that sin. And that wrath is what is in the cup that Jesus is about to drink. <clears throat> First thing we see here in this cup of wrath is the seriousness and ugliness of sin. But secondly, on the flip side of that, we also see a second thing. We see uh, that that actually speaks to the value and significance and glory of humanity. Do you see? Because God looks at us as he looks at nothing else in creation. From the very beginning in Genesis 1, it says that, that people, that men and women are created in God's image. That we bear his stamp that we show something of him to the world, that he has put something in us that is eternal, and we are meant to reflect him and be in relationship with him. We are the very pinnacle of God's creation. And how much, and how much more tragic it is for us as the one true moral beings in the universe to turn our backs on God, to turn away from him. And you see, his wrath against our sin actually speaks to what the beauty and glory of what we were created to be before his face, in relationship with him. But instead, we've run away. Okay, the cup is what Jesus is about to drink. And that is why he is facing this death in a way that none other has. That is why he is on the verge of what feels like real collapse. You see, Jesus' trial here, and we have to get this if we're going to understand the cup, is utterly unique. There is no one else who has ever faced what Jesus faces on the night before the cross. There is no one else that ever stood up to take the cup of the fullness of God's wrath and to drink it down to the lees themselves. Only Jesus. Heard a sermon on this recently uh, out of Luke's account of this by um, a famous pastor, many of you will know, of Sinclair Ferguson. And he uh, was preaching on this text and he told the story in the sermon about that week having heard a radio announcer uh, in, in the middle of some sort of announcement make this statement to the radio audience. Have you had your Gethsemane? You know, sort of like, have you had, have you had just as Jesus did, have you, have you had that pivotal moment of wrestling and struggle? 
Dr. Ferguson, who's refined and dignified, says, you know, I know it was just the radio, but I wanted to shout at it. And I, I won't try to use his Scottish accent, but he says, he says, no one has ever had a Gethsemane other than Jesus. We don't have our own Gethsemanes. No one has ever gone through what Jesus goes through here. No one has ever felt the kind of weight and magnitude of sin. No one has ever felt the kind of sorrow that brings. No one has ever gone through this but Jesus alone. And our own struggles, serious and significant to God, though they are pale in comparison with what Jesus voluntarily, voluntarily took on himself in Gethsemane. This wasn't just a human experience of intense suffering. It was Jesus' experience of seeing that cup being tipped towards him as he prepared to drink. That's what's happening in this prayer and in this evening. So he prays about the cup. But the second thing about his prayer that we need to see is not only the magnitude of what he was facing and his genuine calling out to God of this is overwhelming, is there any other way? We also need to see that Jesus, when he prays, he prays in confidence. Uh, look, look at what he says in, in verse 36. Let's read that again. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And that short prayer is um, loaded with, with theological freight. The first thing is that it tells us something incredibly significant about who God is. Listen to the way Jesus addresses God. He calls him Abba, Father. He comes before the God who has all of this in his hands, who has brought him to this very moment in the garden, and comes to him and says, Abba, Father. It's a term of endearment. It is the cry of a child or an adult child to the parent that they love, to the father they love, to the father they know whose heart is bent towards them. There's this intimacy of relationship between Jesus and his father that has been beyond what anyone else has known. Twice in Jesus' ministry, once when he is baptized, and then the second time at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is revealed in his glory, both those times the people around Jesus hear God the Father speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved son. This is the one. This is the one that I love. He's hearing those words from his father. And he on this night is praying to this father, Abba, Father. It's the same invitation that Jesus gives to us as his people. Romans 8.15, Paul speaks of us receiving the ability now to call God Father ourselves. He says, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The very words that Jesus uses coming to the Father. It tells us something about the intimacy of his relationship with God, the goodness and tenderness of God, that he would come and cry out to his Father. So though he is in the middle of this intense turmoil and torment, he knows that his father is good. But the second thing that he knows is that he knows, uh, it tells us something here about what God can do. He knows that God can stop this in a moment with a word if he chooses to. He says to him, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. God can stop what's going on. He can stop Judas in his tracks as he is in Jerusalem gathering the soldiers to bring them to the garden to arrest Jesus. God can vindicate Jesus without him having to go to the cross. God can withhold the cup of wrath from Jesus and instead give it to another, to the ones who have earned it. He could give it to us. He has that power. 
But then the third thing we see is not only that he calls him father and knows that he is good, not only that he knows that the father has the power to stop it. Third thing we see here is that Jesus uh, shows us something about what it means to trust God. That in the midst of those pieces, his agony, his knowledge the father could stop it, and at the same time his un relenting desire in the end to see this good work happen he says to God not my will but yours God even though I'm asking for this at the end of the day I want you to do what is right not what I want most at this moment God this plan that we have had from the beginning and before eternity to come and save our people I want you to do your will and as Jesus prays that if if there's ever been anyone who could legitimately come to God and look at the circumstances of their life and say, that's not fair, it's Jesus here. Because it is not fair that he take on the sins of the world. Jesus is not getting what he deserves. He's getting what we deserve. He is receiving injustice, as it were, that we might receive God's forgiveness and grace. He is taking our penalty on himself. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. And if you have trouble getting your, your hands around maybe just the, the emotional or kind of the lived out weight of that, I, I can understand that. I think there are times when the way we talk about what Jesus has done for us can feel like this sort of mechanical system or machine, the salvation machine, right? We're, we're, in, we're, we're sinners in, in need of redemption, of salvation. And so God provides an answer in the person of Jesus and he sticks it in the machine and cranks the wheel and out pops the cross and we're forgiven. Or some sort of math, mathematical formula, you know, A plus B equals C, Jesus plus suffering equals our release. And we look at it and we go, well, he's the son of God, right? I mean, uh, he's going to be raised again in three days. You know, doesn't that sort of take some of the edge off? Like Jesus knows this is going to turn out okay in the end, it's resurrection. But don't you, don't you see that that would... That would be just a plaster over the reality of what it meant for our Savior to go through these days. This was real for him. And the wrath of God was real for him. And he really felt like the very sinews of his body were bursting apart. And he really did come to the cross afraid. Ultimately undaunted because he was going to trust in God's will. But afraid and broken as he contemplated the weight of what he was going to do. Our Savior suffered for us. It was not simply some formula written from before the beginning of time. It is our Savior in a garden, undone. It is our Savior whipped and beaten and crucified before He became our Savior, resurrected from the dead. There was an ancient church heresy called docetism. It comes from a Greek word that means to seem. Those who held to it believed that basically Jesus only seemed to suffer. In fact, he only seemed to really be human. You know, Jesus really kind of walked about two inches off the floor all through his earthly life. Things didn't really touch him. And the Bible could not be clear that that is an absolute lie. It didn't only seem to touch him. It did touch him. He didn't only seem to be sorrowful. His heart was rent apart for us. So you see, we, the, the cup that he comes to drink... And the confidence at the very same moment that he brings before the God that he is going to trust to the uttermost. Well, the third thing that we see here is the company. The company of people that Jesus keeps, even in this scene in the garden. He's there with the disciples. 
And just think for a moment of what that means. He comes with the disciples into the garden in order to pray. And so he leaves one group of the disciples. He brings with him Peter, James, and John, who are the inner circle of the disciples. They, they are the ones who have been most privy to Jesus' presence to Jesus' teaching. They are the three that were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was revealed in all His glory, where He's surrounded by light and power, Jesus shining like the sun in full day. And these three are with Him now in Gethsemane where Jesus is now wrapped not in light but in darkness, revealed not in power and glory but in struggle and suffering. They are with Him now. And Jesus wants their company. He says to these three, I'm going to pray. Would you keep watch with me? Would you stay here and pray while I go over there and do the same? And he comes back and finds that they have fallen asleep. And he wakes them up. Couldn't, couldn't you stay awake for an hour with me? Watch and pray. And he comes back three times. And three times they have fallen asleep. And three times they have profoundly let Jesus down. Jesus has invited them in because he is lonely and struggling and his friends have fallen asleep on him. You know, there, there are uh, times maybe in, with, with your own children, if you've got kids, you know what it's like to be at dinner. And... Uh, you, you finally, you've filled everybody's water glass, you've had six different requests from everybody, and, and now you're finally going to sit down and take your first bite, and, and then one of your children asks for something else that has to get out of the refrigerator. And you slowly put your fork down and, and stand up. And, and maybe you know those moments when, when your child just sort of flashes that, that cute smile that sort of makes it all okay. And those other days when they don't. <laughs> Jesus with his disciples was having one of those dinners. Where, where there was no winsome reply from his disciples, where they had utterly let him down. You see, Jesus, as he goes to drink this cup, Jesus, as he is in the very hard battle to trust his Father, is in the company of people who time and again drop the ball and fail him. I mean, imagine this. He goes that first time and prays as he is sweating blood and praying over the fact that he is going to take upon himself the wrath of God to save, among others, these three men over here. And he walks back to them, and they are asleep. And he does it again and again. What do we see as Jesus does that? Well, it's just one more picture of many. That Jesus was not in this for himself. He was in it for us. He was in it for his disciples. He was in that garden loving them in the midst of all their unloveliness. And that's the way he comes and loves us. And that's often the way he has to continue to love us. People who have not gotten it together, but people who have profoundly failed him. That's what Paul had in mind in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that since we were so great, he loved us. Since we were the A-team. Now he says, but God so loves, shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the very depths of our need, he died for us. Somehow, even in this picture of Jesus coming to his disciples, we, we see a picture of the beauty of the gospel. As he comes to them again, out of his sheer grace, giving these men what they do not deserve and coming and doing the same for us. 
so that we can be freed now to enjoy and be amazed by the goodness of God's love, of his grace, of this salvation that he is winning at the cross for us when we brought nothing to the table for him. This scene in the garden is the beginning of the scene that culminates in Easter. It is the start of Jesus' passion. It is the beginning of him taking this cup from the Father's hand. It is what we have here this morning is a glimpse of this full picture of what he is going to go through for him over these next 24 hours or so as he is rejected not only by his disciples and by his country, but we're going to see ultimately even by his Father on the cross for us. You see, no one else has had a Gethsemane. No one else has tasted what Jesus tastes. And so we see him on the eve of this undone because he is doing what no one else had ever done and he is doing what no one else will ever do. He is tasting the cup that he did not deserve so that we who do deserve it will never have to taste it. We'll never have to take even a sip. And so that is why we see Jesus on this night undone. And then you fast forward a decade and centuries more and you see Stephen, who's able to go to his death with calmness and trust. And Latimer and Ridley, as they're being burned at the stake, who are able to sing God's praises and to speak of the light of the gospel that can never be put out. They can go with that kind of assurance, with that kind of comfort, with that kind of knowledge that in as hard as their situation is, God will see them through. They can know that and hold on to it and live it out because on this night, in this garden, in Gethsemane, Jesus took for them something that they would never have to take themselves. And now they and we are free to live and die in real and solid confidence that Christ's love for us cannot be shaken. Jesus, who took this cup, who shows us the way of trust in God in the midst of all his mysterious doing, and this Jesus who did this for company like these disciples, company like us. Let's pray.